0: Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Alvin Tejo. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Chris Martin. And today we're continuing our tour around Ontario in our Better Know a Region series, getting out of the Toronto GTA bubble and getting up close and personal with another region of Ontario. Today we're traveling north to Northern Ontario, which is home to over 800,000 Ontarians and over 800 square kilometers. Northern Ontario is huge. It makes up 75% of Ontario's landmass that has only 5% of the population. Now, if you're wondering, the province's definition of Northern Ontario essentially starts at the French River and moves north. It follows Highway 17 all the way to Manitoba, some 2,000 kilometers later. Northern Ontario is much more diverse than you may think, with over 25% of the population being English and French bilingual, and over one in four Northern Ontarians identifying themselves as Indigenous. There are also two time zones in Northern Ontario. There are two large cities in Northern Ontario that are Thunder Bay and Sudbury, both representing very different regions and economies within Northern Ontario as a whole. And the economy of Northern Ontario is heavily dependent on resources like mining and forestry, while also featuring a number of public or government agencies like colleges, universities, hospitals, and even ministries, after Premier Peterson moved a number of them up north. Public sentiment among Northern Ontarians is often voiced as a region that feels overlooked and that Southerners just don't get it. Perhaps one of the benefits of being more remote may be seen in our current COVID-19 crisis, with relatively fewer cases reported in Northern Ontario per capita than the rest of Ontario, with numbers only in the dozens instead of hundreds or thousands. So to help us with this discussion, we're pleased to welcome to the pod the former Ontario Minister of Energy, the MPP for Sudbury, as well as the former MP for Sudbury, Glenn Tebow. Glenn, welcome to
1: Ontario Loud. Great to be here, Alvin. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Glenn. Before we dive in, just wanted to check in with you. How how are things with you these days? And how is Sudbury handling the pandemic?
1: Well, I, I think Sudbury has turned a corner. We haven't had a case here since uh, May seventeenth. But you know, we're all still practicing social distancing and. I think our community has done really well to ensure that uh, we've helped the province, you know, reach that threshold where we're now, fortunately, in northern Ontario, going to be able to seem to get back to whatever normal is going to be this Friday. Although barbershops and uh, hair salons are now going to be open, I have cut my own hair twice um, during this (laughs) pandemic. So it's a skill I didn't think I had, or as I'm finding out, fortunately, there's no video in this. That uh, the hair isn't as uh, nicely combed as it used to be.
2: Uh, Alvin, as you were reading the intro today, uh, the lines get out of the Toronto GTA bubble and Northern Ontario feels overlooked. I feel like after this week's announcement, there's a lot of Torontonians that'll want to get out of the GTA bubble and maybe Northern Ontario might want to be a little more overlooked by people coming to get haircuts and stuff. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> some is
0: a long way to go to get a haircut, but uh, some, I know some people who definitely need some.
2: <laughs> my hair is extremely long right now. Uh, and yeah. Glenn, how's your family?
1: You know, uh, I think the interesting part is for my kids, right? And, and you know, that whole routine, my daughters are 16 and 12, and the whole routine of school and everything else is just, you know, obviously out the window. And, you know, I was, before this call, I was sitting down with my 12-year-old and trying to help her with integers, right, and algebra. And I'm going, oh, my God, that's like 30 some years ago for me. And, you know, fortunately, the teachers have been doing great work by putting videos on YouTube. So, you know, I'm studying that video along with my my uh, daughter to try to be able to figure this stuff out. So, you know, we've we've made it through, you know, and everyone understands. But it's just been, I think, a tough row for for everyone that's, uh, you know, has kids to try and be able to balance both family life and, uh, you know, work and education and all of that, and all doing it within the same household at the same time, right?
3: Yeah, it's definitely something that uh, sounds familiar to a lot of our listeners, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, but if anybody knows how to do integers, please look <laughs> me up on social media, because I don't think I've given her the right answer.
2: There you go. <laughs> Tweet at us. We'll help with your homework, just like Justin Trudeau. <laughs> I'm 100% sure there's someone in our audience who who, who, who could help you.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. But someone mentioned, too, I could just call up uh, the prime minister because, you know, he said he'd help. He's a former.
0: Exactly. Teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A former math teacher. So, yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, so, Glenn, you uh, you were born and raised in Sudbury. You graduated from Cambrian College. You led the United Way of Sudbury, but you've also lived in other parts of Canada and, uh, I guess, went back again to Sudbury. Uh, What do you love about Northern Ontario, about Sudbury? And um, do you think it's misunderstood by Ontarians from further south?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So born and raised in Sudbury, uh, lived in North Bay. So once upon a time, I was a radio newscaster. So I lived in North Bay, London, obviously, I did my stint in Toronto, like every good Ontarian. But I also lived out West. So I lived in uh, North Vancouver, British Columbia, and I ran group homes for developmentally handicapped adults and kids. That's Uh, part of my background. Um, And what brought me home was family and of course Sudbury, right? So the reason why Uh, I wanted to raise my family here as being close to my extended family. At the time, both my parents were alive, but they were elderly. My father passed away in 2015. My mother passed away in 2009. My dad was 101 when he passed. He was 56 when I was born. So hopefully that, you know, that runs in my family. I've turned 50. So hopefully, you know, not that I ever want to have more kids. (laughs) I've got to put that out there right now. I was talking about longevity. But, you know, the the thing that people don't realize about Sudbury is they they perceive it as a mining town. And yeah, we, you know, we have two refineries in our community. We have, you know, mines, uh, you know, a dime a dozen in our community, but we have 330 lakes. And what used to be perceived of our community was you know, all of these lakes are polluted and, you know, our, 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 our landscape is black. Well, we've won UN awards for regreening. Out of all of the 330 lakes, I remember as a kid that we were told there was at least 90 to 100 of those lakes that you couldn't go to. They were dead. Well, only I think it's one or two of those that are left, and those are almost going to be reclaimed. You know, we've got the massive smokestack and the big nickel, and, you know, we should be celebrating that the smokestack is going to be shut down. Like we no longer need that because of policies that our government put in place uh, when we were in power over years to actually you know reduce the sulfur dioxide emissions, help regreen, and we'd actually don't need that anymore. they've found a way to capture the sulfur and to actually utilize that sulfur that they used to throw into the air. So we don't have, you know, uh, acid rain and all of these things. So we've come a long way as a community. We've got three post-secondary institutions. You know, we've now got, you know, great medical uh, school up here in Sudbury and in Thunder Bay. Again, something that the Liberal government did to ensure that we can get more doctors in the North, because that's still an issue for us as we continue to to grow as a community.
2: Yeah, and I want to dig in a little bit on those issues. I certainly remember from my time in, in the provincial government, like, any time that you were looking at the issues facing northern institutions, northern communities, there was a, just like a different lens that needed to be applied. So I'm curious right now what you feel to sort of be some of the biggest challenges that face the region. And uh, particularly, what do you think that the Ontario government policymakers, many of whom often live in Toronto and uh, southern Ontario, might still to this day fail to understand about some of the challenges facing uh, northern communities?
1: So you know Sudbury, for example, we're a city of one hundred and fifty-eight thousand people. We, you know, we're I wouldn't say we're small, but you know, we we don't have all of the specialists that you do in southern Ontario. And so, you know, for us, it's it's a drive down Highway sixty-nine, then Highway four hundred to be able to see a, see a doctor or a specialist in some cases. And what is overlooked is the cost that's associated with this. And so the government even before my time implemented, you know, the Northern Ontario Health Grant, which is $100 that you get towards this visit, which, you know, is great. But when you think about someone who's even further north of Sudbury who has to take their child down to Toronto, if it's a car dr- if it's a drive on in your vehicle, You know, you're looking at at least two tanks of gas, which is at least 160 bucks, plus hotel, plus food. Then you're there if you're there for a couple of nights and then you got to drive back. All of a sudden... That hundred dollars, it ends up costing you more out of pocket than than it would for the person in southern Ontario, because you just have the opportunity of going to see the physician or that specialist who is there. Let alone the doctor component, even even the tools. So, you know, one of the things that I advocated for, and I was so proud of, you know, Minister Hoskins or Dr. Hoskins and former Premier Wynne agreeing with me that we needed a PET scanner. We had so many people who had cancer had to drive down the highway again or take a flight down the highway, get their treatment. And then while they're, you know, sick with chemo and everything else, having to travel back four hours or whatever that is. So, you know, recognizing the needs of Northern Ontario um, was something that we would always try and put that mirror to, to say, we get it. We're not trying to ask for special treatment. We're just trying to be able to get the treatment that everyone else is getting, you know, if you're living in Toronto or if you're living in London. And so that was part of what we were constantly trying to advocate for, let alone uh, PSWs. And I know we were talking about COVID, but I'm using this as an example of, You have a large influx, and I know every community could probably use PSWs, but even back during the 2018 election, we were talking about adding 5,500 more just specifically to Northern Ontario, because we have a huge aging population. We we don't have enough youth in many of our communities because we've seen youth uh, out migration. So we have an elderly population, we don't have enough PSWs, and so I'm knocking on wood as I'm saying this, you know, we were fortunate enough uh, in Northern Ontario that we um, didn't see as many deaths as other places did. And, you know, that that was a, a horrible issue, and I think it's something that we all need to to work on uh, to ensure that we can dress moving forward.
3: Mm-hmm. So maybe if we can turn a bit to politics up north. So you, you of course, are both a former NDP MP and a liberal MPP. Uh, and I think you and I actually are probably the only people on this podcast who share the fact that we've been members of both the NDP and liberals at different times in our lives. Um, yep. So what is it about the north that seems to elect you know an, a large number of progressive uh, representatives, both liberals and New Democrats? There's also been a green MP from Northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. Is there is there something about the sort of the northern culture that um, creates a different outcome in in terms of their political leanings?
1: I think part of that relates to strong unionization in the north, but that just isn't it either, right? We've we've got some really good post secondary education institutions that also talk about progressive visions. It's having an understanding of the working person and making sure that men and women who work in forestry or work in mining or who are working the front lines, they understand what hard work is all about and always try to make sure that they they can help their common man, right? And that's something that you'll see in most parts of, of Northern Ontario is the se- that sense of community. Not to say that it doesn't exist in larger centres, but, you know, it's that sense of community wanting to help your, your, your neighbor out. And so having that progressive vision, I think, in the north is one of the reasons why, you know, you'll always see a leaning towards more of the parties that will provide that type of leadership and that type of policy or program. Not to say that the Conservatives have not been elected, right? Like, uh, you know, you Mm -hmm. do have some Conservatives elected in Northern Ontario, but it's usually a progressive vision, one that will look after your neighbour, one that will actually support those who, uh, you know, who work in in difficult fields like the mining sector or the forestry sector or some of the industrial uh, parts of the economy that we have in the North. So that's where I think you get that. It's more of a a history um, and the person that really gets elected in Northern Ontario.
0: Well, there was a moment in the 90s where you had all three provincial leaders of the New Democrats. You had Howard Hampton, the Liberals had uh, Lynn McLeod, and uh, the Tories had uh, Mike Harris where all Mm -hmm. three leaders were from Northern Ontario at the same time, which I thought was an interesting thing to to have happened. Yep. You know, we just went through our own uh, Ontario Liberal leadership race, uh, and we did our uh, our debate in Sudbury. Uh, But I always find it interesting when leadership candidates um, visit regions that are very unique, that have sort of a distinct feel to them, and they sort of propose things that they acknowledge. You know, I haven't really thought about this until now, so now I'm going to suggest we do this to help. (laughs) To help Northerners. I don't know how Northerners take that. I I don't know if they see that as sort of patronizing or not. But I do remember in the 2011 Ontario Liberal leadership race that Glenn Murray suggested Northern Ontario should have its own super regional government to address issues that predominantly affect Northern Ontario that don't usually get the attention of, uh, of the regular Ontario government. And there have also been a number of succession movements in Northern Ontario. Uh, to become its own province in order to deal with those issues more directly, I'm just sort of wondering what your thoughts are on that, Glenn.
1: So my my thoughts relate to we're one province, and I don't think we should ever contemplate having a Northern Ontario and a Southern Ontario like you know North or South Dakota or North and South Carolina. We are one province. We all, as much as we like to say we're you know, we'll butt heads every once in a while. It's like big brother and little brother. And depending on who or where, who's the big and who's the little, but we'll always stand up for one another. I'm a very proud Ontarian, but I'm also a very proud Northern Ontarian. And, you know, as much as, you know, you'll get the Northern Ontario party talking about how they want to see their own type of government or even what Glenn was saying back then, having a a, a super regional type of committee or whatever we wanted to establish. I don't know if that, would actually provide the benefits. I do believe having the right policies in place and making sure that on Northern Ontario is always heard uh, will be key to making sure that you can get the policies that you need. When I was, you know, elected in uh, twenty fifteen, I, I mentioned it earlier. We started talking about a PET scanner. We started continuing uh, to talk about the 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 twinning of Highway sixty nine. Um, those things happened. Right. If you have a strong voice to be able to represent your regions, Northern Ontario can continue to prosper. And I, I do think right now, unfortunately, as, as much as the, the Ford government has been talking about that, pausing Highway 69's construction uh, is a partisan issue and it should never be. The safety mm-hmm. of people on the highways should never be a partisan issue and you know it was started uh by the mike harris government he agreed rick bartolucci was you know an opposition mpp at the time and he pushed and and actually got uh the the conservative government of the day to recognize that this is an important piece of highway uh with you know it's part of the trans canada you've got you know trucks i'm talking like transport trucks on this all the time so this shouldn't have been a partisan issue it should have continued but apparently and i'm quoting right it's been paused Mm. and you know every time Someone now is either injured or, you know, I hate saying it, being killed on the 68 kilometers that are left. That's something that should not be happening. We should make sure that this highway is continuing. So we've got 15 more kilometers being constructed. That was something that uh, the, the Liberal government, have, we announced, I was able to announce that. And then it's now paused. And, and that should be reversed.
2: What I sort of always tell people is, uh, is one of my the things that I sort of take away from uh, my time in provincial government is how diverse a province we actually are and how you really need to go, like in particular with the north, there's a lens that you, I think, just don't see until you go to communities where there is a sort of a significant amount of difference. I'm curious, uh, maybe while we're talking about policy, if we can move to uh, something that you are uh, quite expert in, uh, and the, uh, the energy file in Ontario, uh, you're no such the fact that it's uh, extremely uh, fraught and uh, complex. I'm curious, uh, in the neighborhood of uh, misunderstood policy areas in Ontario, w- when we talk about energy, are there energy needs that are unique to the north that we don't understand? And are there things that people just need to understand about Ontario energy policy just generally?
1: Well, that's a can of worms, <laughs> um, and, and any you know, I absolutely love talking about energy. So you know, ha- happy mm. to get into this. When it comes to the north, what's frustrating for many of us is the beast that is Toronto, the beast that is southern Ontario, which needs so yeah. much power to actually just you know keep the lights on. So while we have all of the power in our backyard through hydroelectric, and we call it. Hydropower, right? We call it hydro. Mm-hmm. Where's my hydro bill? I don't want to pay my hydro bill. It's too high, right? It's it's electricity, right? But you know, we yeah. have we have hydroelectric power in this province that powers anywhere between fifteen to thirty percent of our, our our needs, depending on the day and and depending on the volume. And you know, you know, if it's a hot summer day, uh, we're going to need the air conditioning and. I call it the beast of Toronto, will suck all that power. And for those of us that have the hydroelectric in our backyards, it's like, well, why are we paying these extra costs to make sure that Toronto has power when we should just tap into it up here? And what what, what gets overlooked is the complexity of the system right so we've got nuclear plants down south we've got you know hydroelectric up north hydroelectric down obviously in niagara falls wind and solar scattered throughout the province all of these actually help us make our system up and what people don't understand is you know well then why is my bill so high mm-hmm. and you know ontario's paying the highest you know some of the highest costs in north america And that was perpetuated by the opposition because we aren't paying the highest uh, in North America. We're right smack dab in the middle. But, you know, when I talk about Toronto being the beast, Toronto also used to have to deal with that beast, which was smog, right? Caused by a lot of the coal, uh, you know, fired power plants that we had in this province. We eliminated those. So, you know, we haven't had a smog day in Ontario since, you know, I can recall, you know, up until I left, uh, left you know, the ministry was 2014. I don't think you've had one since because we don't have the coal power generation plants anymore. And why I'm getting to, you know, the whole point of the cost and everything else is we know as a society that we have to address climate change. We know that coal and, you know, fossil fuels are are the major form uh, of pollution and and you know the the ghgs that are affecting climate change so what we've done in this province why it may have cost us a bit more in in this start is something that every other jurisdiction in north america and around the world needs to do you know unless you're you know quebec that can live off of legacy hydroelectric power you know everyone else needs to get off of coal so while we have Mm -hmm. already done that and we're seeing about $4 $4 billion a year in healthcare savings because of people not having to go into the hospital, you know, elderly or folks that are asthmatic, because of the smog and because of those pieces that related to this, we actually now are benefiting. So when you're looking at Northern Ontario, there's a bit of a frustration in the sense that why was it that we're part of all of this? But again, it relates to making sure that our Northern Ontario mining, forestry and industries have the subsidies as well to help offset some of that. So the Conservative government has left these in place. We implemented them like the Northern Ontario Electricity Rebate Programme. Um, which actually helped provide some of the larger industries in Northern Ontario with a very significant subsidy because they can operate uh, more effectively like mining companies and smelters. You know, uh, both uh, Glencore and Valet have two smelters and are two of the largest users of electricity In the province because of that but we need their we need their minerals to make sure that we can continue to make the storage batteries right for the next round of electricity so there's you know there's lots that i can talk about in in what we've done to actually help with energy and help with electricity um both on the on the the business side But as well, in Northern Ontario, you have the Ontario Electricity Rebate Program, which was uh, something to help residents, uh, specifically those who were in uh, Northern communities or those who were low income. So there was lots done on both sides to make sure that uh, while the costs did go up, they have been maintained and there are programs in place to actually help reduce it.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Glenn, I think... I think it's easy to say that the price of electricity was an issue that definitely dogged the uh, previous government, uh, our government, the wind government, over a number of years. And even going back to 2011, gas plants and, and sort of the uh, managing the system. Mm-hmm. And partly because the opposition was successful, as you said, in falsely linking the sale of hydro hydro one to rising electricity costs. You mentioned some of the drivers of price increases. I'm wondering if you can sort of touch on that, maybe dive in a little bit more about how we eventually responded and and some of the significant factors to the increasing price uh, of electricity and sort of wondering if looking back now, if there's anything that you would have done differently or said differently to try and address the issue.
1: Yeah, the, the sale of Hydro One had absolutely nothing to do with the price of electricity in Ontario. They're regulated by the OEB. Their, their costs were, were fixed costs and the OEB set their rates just like every other uh, distributor as well. I think at the crow's nest, you know, looking out on the way Hydro One was sold, I think that could have been done a little differently in terms of timing because there used to be something called the Ontario Clean Energy Benefit, which was a 10% reduction on everyone's bills. That came off uh, in, uh, I think it was January, February of 2015. And then the next month, everyone's bills went up 10%. Then the following month, the OEB did their usual increase, you know, when they look at the rates and said, okay, it needs to go up. I think it was another couple of percent. So everyone's bills went up between 12 and 15%. And then we made the announcement that we're selling Hydro One at the same time. I think the timing of that could have been a little bit different because people just saw the news selling hydro one and then the bills went up and then next thing you know we're into what we we are i think we could have communicated that a lot better but that's the hindsight piece of all of that you know and then the firing of of uh the ceo um and i know ford called him his million dollar man but you know (laughs) it, it was like so here's an individual who was hired by the board to come in to help that company find savings so his salary Uh, And this is still a lot of money. I'm not going to minimize it. His salary, I think, was about $500,000 a year or something along those lines. But the rest of Mm -hmm. that were bonuses that he was paid. So he got paid $1.6 million. But that was a bonus because he found, I think it was $75 or $79 million in savings. So they were on track to continue to find ways to reduce costs to lower or at least flatten the curve, since that's a common phrase right now, of where the price index was going to go for, for energy coming from Hydro One. But, you know, overall, there were many things that we were doing as a government to actually help lower the cost for individuals at home on the pocketbook and for businesses. Um, you know, we had the uh, the 25% reduction that, uh, you know, we implemented Uh, six months before, I think even a year before the election, making sure that we can get this program in place to actually help people reduce their bills by 25%. The Ford government hasn't canceled that. They have not. They changed the name of it so you no longer see, you know, uh, the Fair Hydro plan on your on your energy bills or your electricity bills anymore. It's now called, um, I think it's like the Ontario rebates or some, the Ontario electricity <laughs> rebate. They did, you know, so it's still there because there was no other levers to pull. Right. We were bare bones in making sure that we cancelled green energy projects that we no longer needed. You know, we canceled uh, the, the LRP2 program, Long uh, Large Renewable Programs or Large Renewable Project, LRP. That's the one thing about energy is it always talks in acronyms. Um, anyways, all of that being said is we canceled that, which was a savings of like, uh, I think it was $2 billion at the time. Um, you know, we were we were finding ways of of reducing those costs, but at the same time, maintaining electricity grid and maintaining a grid that was clean, and green and providing you know good new clean jobs we are a leader when it comes to that sector and and ontario still is providing that it's just unfortunate that we um you know saw some of the changes with the you know cancelling of cap and trade you know that was that was integral to also our our energy grid because We were now talking about having solar at home and we were incentivizing and we are using dollars to actually from the cap and trade program to help people get on to solar, which actually then helps them reduce their energy bills, helps our overall economy, helps our overall environment. And those were the things that were were getting uh, overlooked by this conservative government and the changes that they've made to the electricity system right now, I I don't think have, have done anything significant other than just keep our programs but rename them.
3: So maybe picking up on that point, if we can dive a little bit further into what they've done, um, it was reported in in January of this year that the foreign governments on track to spend about 1.6 billion more than they expected on their electricity subsidies, which is like 40 percent. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to spend about four billion, and now it's like five point six. They, I mean, you know the minister of finance basically turned around and. Blame the liberals. Uh, so he said, "This is the legacy of the failed liberal plan that removed transparency and caused instability, and it provided energy that people didn't need at prices they couldn't afford." And what What is the government? I mean, is the government just literally following what the Liberal Party plan was, and that's what why these these um, costs have ballooned, or is there is there other stuff going on behind the scenes that you know of?
1: Well, I th- I think right now too, um, just with COVID, I'm I'm going to tip my hat to them. I think they did the right thing. By uh, eliminating time of use, but they do need to get back to time of use because, in my opinion, time of use and conservation, which is what time of use really is—it's the conservation of electricity—will actually allow us not to build any more infrastructure. And if you don't need to build any more infrastructure, then global adjustment, which is another complex piece, um, doesn't need to be a you know doesn't need to be increased. So if if I take that one step back and if we look at before COVID. What we have is, is a you know a, an electricity grid firing on all cylinders. And the use that we need every day to help the manufacturing sector in Southern Ontario, to help the you know, the mining f- functions up here in Northern Ontario, the forestry, when all of that is running, you've got a system now that actually is clean and it's uh, effective. They've tinkled in it, I think, uh, tinkered in it a little bit. Tinkle is a whole other thing that you need to do with education of small children if they need to learn how to potty, but you know, that's a whole other area. But tinkering, uh, I don't think will actually, you know, bring necessarily, you know, the change that they were talking about, because they're talking about another 12% reduction, right? That was their, that was their campaign promise. And the only way that they can do that is to start shutting down a lot of and you've we've seen it, right? We've seen them shut down a lot of their green energy programs or projects that uh, were in place. That's going to cost them money because someone's going to have to pay for that. But what they're forgetting and what they're not looking at is in a couple of years, Pickering is going to shut down. And so I'm hoping that they are going to start to look at that because where are we going to get that energy? Where are we going to replace the 3000 megawatts that we would get from Pickering? Is it firing up all of the gas plants that we have in the province? Because if we do that then the curve that we are also proud of in Ontario, and that's people from every political stripe, are proud that we have been reducing our GHGs in this province significantly. Are we going to see that dramatically increase because all of a sudden, we're going to start using this capacity to, to meet our energy needs, to meet our electricity needs, while we could have been looking at some of the alternative energy sources like solar, wind, um, you know, small modular reactors, those another component of the nuclear world, um, you know, storage is a game changer. So you know, as much as they want to, you know, poke and, and blame us for everything, and that's what governments do, right? You always blame the the previous guy for their mistakes, and I think never, everyone gets never. that, <laughs> right? Right? So it's always our fault, and fair enough, right? That's that's their prerogative. But really, I do hope that they're preparing because it's not like, uh, you know, a sim game where you can just buy and open up a, you know, wind farm or a new any type of electricity plant in a, in a, in a day. It takes a lot of planning, a lot of time, uh, a lot of resources, a lot of co- consultation with communities. So, you know, our 2017 long term energy plan addressed that. They threw it out. And so I hope they're coming up with their own plans now to make sure that you know, we don't have to go back to two thousand and three, where we're relying on imports from the U.S. to power our province, and we all remember August of two thousand and three. Yeah,
0: yeah, there were a lot of blackouts.
1: <laughs> yeah, rolling brownouts and blackouts is not something that we, as a province, can can ever get back to. There was too much invested in that, and I I really am hopeful that you know, and and the great thing about uh, the Ontario government is the public service. They have great people who work behind the scenes, and uh, I know Energy was fortunate to have great bureaucrats who I, I'm always confident in that uh, they'll be doing something to address that. And uh, hopefully the government will listen to, to the bureaucrats who, who are the corporate memory of understanding where we need to go in a lot of these things.
0: I mean, otherwise we'll be stuck in this cycle of you know, conservative governments who cut and uh, don't invest in the future. And then you need liberal governments to come in, uh, reinvest, and then, and then obviously get blamed again for having to, yeah. to spend more <laughs> money um, because the previous government didn't.
1: We can go all the way back to liberal, conservative, and new democrat governments. All of us, every single government from Bob Ray to Mike Harris you know, to Dalton McGinty, you know, just keep going back. We can go back 50 years. We should have been continuing to invest in our infrastructure for the longest time, especially when it comes to electricity, and all of us didn't. And so it came up to, you know, then to Dalton and then to Kathleen uh, to make sure that we put the right investments in place to get us to this system that we currently have today. That is and should be um, the envy of every jurisdiction in North America when it comes to the complexity of our grid, but at the same time, you know, having storage, having wind, having solar, having nuclear, um, having hydro, you know, we, we we don't have to rely on just an import. We can actually power ourselves. Yeah.
0: Well, Glenn, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. But before we let you go, a couple of uh, quick, fun things I'd like to talk about. You know, I got a chance to travel around a lot during the, the leadership race. And uh, one of the things I was told when I went to Thunder Bay was that I had to try a Persian. I wasn't exactly sure what a Persian was. I thought it was somebody from Iran, uh, but apparently it's not. Um, it's, it's a it's a wonderful uh, pastry if you uh, if, if if you're listening and you haven't been to. I've had day.
1: I've had a few Persians too. They're quite good.
0: Yeah, no, they are. Yeah. Really, shouldn't eat too many of them. But um, I'm wondering what what else in Northern Ontario or what from Sudbury should uh, should someone try if they get to go there.
1: Oh, geez. So Stack Beer, one of my favorites. So you can go to Stack and pick up uh, a Saturday night. So, you know, little old Stomp and Tom Sudbury Saturday night is where that comes from. But while you're doing that, <laughs> I would suggest that you get a meatball sub from Cortina. Oh, my God, they're delicious. When <laughs> I lived out in Vancouver, my wife was pregnant at the time and we actually had my mother in law uh, freeze a few, then put them in an ice box and then, uh, stuff that with like all the, you know, those cold compresses as much as we can. And then I paid way too much money for, uh, a courier to bring that out to Vancouver and then watched her eat it. So that was fine. (laughs) I got, I got a bite. And then the final thing that someone should eat is a jelly pig, which you can get at, um, Oh, it's, uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of the bakery. She's going to shoot me when I go in to pick up my jelly pigs Get them <laughs> on Thursday. It's a finished place and it's, uh, right up on, uh, right off of Regent Street near the Holiday Inn where the debate was. I could have brought jelly pigs, uh, when you were up there, Alvin. But, oh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah.
0: Famous Northern Ontarians. I looked it up. Uh, Alex Trebek, Governor General David Johnston, Premiers Hearst mm-hmm. and Harris, Paul Schaefer, more hockey players than I can name. Uh, yep. Who's your favorite Northern Ontarian that people might not, may not know was from Northern Ontario?
1: Can I say the guys from Letterkenny, even though they're not from Northern Ontario, they're filmed here in Sudbury thanks to NOHFC grants?
0: That's no, that's a good answer.
1: That's 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 great because I love Letterkenny.
2: No way, I had no clue actually. I, I, I'm also a huge fan of the show. Yeah.
1: It's um, it's yeah, filmed here. Well, I shouldn't say they. You know, they, it's a great company. Uh, they're doing great work, but they got some Northern Ontario uh, NOHFC funds, and that's how it started up here. And yeah, it's just it's fantastic. It, just, it
0: is. It, it's really it, it is. And Letterkenny was a town in eastern Ontario, I think, outside of Ottawa, but it's since been a ghost town. It's abandoned.
1: Yeah, I think that they base it off of Listol or something like
2: that. I'm, yeah, they base it off of Listol uh, outside of Guelph. So, <laughs> so that is a that is a, that is a Canadian uh, fact. Filming a show in Northern Ontario about Southwest Ontario uh, <laughs> with grants. Uh, I'm sure you know a decision made in uh, Toronto somewhere. Yeah, like that is the, there's a there's a Canadian policy story there. That yeah, I'm sure exactly. it's interesting.
1: Yeah, but no, Letterkenny is is, is what I'll say. Most people don't know that's in Sudbury, but yeah, Fruit Hotel, Countryside Arena. Um, There's a family that owns the farm. I've got a picture of uh, me standing in front of the barn. So yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That's great.
0: Well, (laughs) thank you so much, Glenn, for coming on. Hope you and your family stay safe uh, during all of this. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to actually getting a professional to cut my hair, so. That'll happen on Friday.
0: (laughs) Well, I've got a list of things I need to buy the next time I go up to Sudbury. So thank you. (laughs) Take care. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us on our second part of our Better Know a Region series right here on Ontario Loud. You can check out the first part on ontarioloud.ca where we interviewed London Deputy Mayor Jesse Helmer who spoke to us about the challenges in southwestern Ontario. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll explore other regions. Thank you again to Glenn Tebow for joining us today. You can find him in Sudbury at Linala's Bakery, where he'll buy you a jelly pig. Please join us throughout the month of June as we celebrate Pride Month and touch on a number of issues facing the LGBTQ community. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to Ontario Loud on our website, wherever you find your podcasts, Facebook, and Twitter. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Alexi White, Grima Kapoor, Sam Andry, and myself, Alvin Teje. Thanks to our support team, Ayesha Anwar and Harman Mundi, and of course, our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe.